Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. There is a new and surprising problem that has quietly, but perhaps not unnotably, come to fruition during the more recent years. Our children seem out of control in comparison to previous generations. It's not your imagination. A recent study of first graders found that they could sit still for no more than three minutes, which is actually only a quarter of the time that their peers could do so in 1948. Government statistics show that half of all children will develop a mood or behavioral disorder or a substance addiction by age 18. What the heck is going on? I receive questions through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and email, all asking about what parents and teachers and coaches can do to get children to behave better. The old methods of rewards and punishments, star charts and timeouts are not working. Are your ears perking up? We've all seen it, and you are not alone. My next guest has some good news about bad behavior and some great tips and scripts to help us better understand our children and how to help our children learn to self-regulate. Catherine Reynolds Lewis is an award-winning journalist and author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever and What to Do About It. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Fortune, Money, Mother Jones, The New York Times Parade, Slate USA, Today's Magazine Group, The Washington Post Magazine, and Working Mother. She is an EWA Education Reporting Fellow and Logan Nonfiction Fellow at the Cary Institute for Global Good. Residencies include the Virginia Center for Creative Arts and Ragdale. Previously, Catherine was a national correspondent for Newhouse and Bloomberg News, covering everything from financial and media policy to the White House. She holds a BA in physics from Harvard University and is a certified parent educator with the Parent Encouragement Program in Kensington, Maryland. She and her husband, Brian, are the proud parents of three children, 25, 14, and 12 years old. I am so excited about this interview, and I know my listeners are too, so welcome, Catherine Lewis, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. Well, before we get into the bulk of the interview, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in writing about children, discipline, and as you say, the good news about bad behavior? Uh, What gets me up in the morning um, is just uh, the love of telling, hearing, and sharing stories. So I love talking to parents and scientists and trying to understand what's happening with kids today and then sharing it with the world. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I've been doing since I was 12 years old was, was writing and, and, and sharing stories. And I I feel really privileged that I'm able to continue doing that as my job. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then, of course, on a more practical level, of course, my children get me out of bed sure. or my dog. Yeah. And, uh, the sort of need to get the day moving along. Um, and they're also really what got me interested in this topic of kids' behavior because I have three very different, um, wonderful and headstrong mm -hmm. and independent-minded kids and each of them has really challenged me to grow and I really think become a better person as I try to really respect them as an individual but also have a household that is somewhat orderly and mm -hmm. have you know things that run on time and um, and that's really you know trying to understand them is what got me interested in this topic in the first place some mm -hmm. like eight or nine years ago right and you had an explosive article uh, that came out a, a couple of years ago and it just went viral it just struck a nerve and really talked about the methods that were outdated and not working and the methods that now were working better, but people didn't seem to know about it. I, I, we interviewed Dr. Ross Green on this podcast and you talked a lot about him and his methods and really looking into schools and parents that were using his methods as a sort of springboard to discuss something needs to be done differently now. So can you tell us a little bit more about what prompted the, the article and the book and, and where that leaves us now? Yeah, so the article came about because I was interviewing Dr. Green for a feature story in Washington Parent Magazine. And at the end of our conversation, uh, we were just chatting and he happened to mention he was moving his whole family to Maine, moving his practice and implementing his model in uh, more than a dozen public schools in Maine. And it just impressed me that he was so committed to doing what was right for behaviorally challenging kids that I started poking around and doing some interviews with principals who had used his model. I talked to juvenile justice wardens who had used his discipline mm -hmm. model. And once I talked to them, it was just a light bulb that all, all these people had found it transformative. Mm. And as a journalist, when you strike something like that, that is real, that people are just excited about, that is changing kids' lives, mm -hmm. you know that you have an amazing story to tell. So um, from there, I you know flew to Maine and spent a few days with him and with the educators using his model and shadowed a family. And that led to the article in Mother Jones Magazine. Um, and, and I... I, I'm so I feel so validated that it was this instinct that I had that this was a huge story. And then, of course, when this story was published and it went viral, um, it was just the realization that, yes, I'm not the only parent or we are not the only parents struggling with how to discipline our kids in effective ways that feel right to us, mm. that feel like they they are in line with what we want for our relationship with our kids and, and how we want to be with them. Um, and so then that reaction to the article, you know, just propelled the story um, into a book proposal. I found an amazing literary agent, um, Richard Pine, who really helped me shape that proposal. And then, um, you know, he, he sent it out to publishers and we had some wonderful offers and I ended up going with Public Affairs and my editor there, Ben Adams, and the uh, team there, Jamie Leifer, is the publicity director, just has been an amazing home for this book. Um, so I brought in from the article, really was more focused on school discipline and um, Dr. Green's 
studies model. And then in the book, I write more broadly about discipline. And I looked at four different models. So Dr. Green's model, um, the PACS Good Behavior Game, which is also a school-based model. And then I wrote about the Parent Encouragement Program here in Maryland and Vicki Hofel's model of duct tape parenting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, basically following scientists and teachers and parents and the families that my kids say I stalked families because <laughs> I sort of went into their homes and waited for something interesting to happen and something always happens when there's kids around. And from there, I tried to extrapolate, you know, what is really effective? What works for helping kids to learn to self-regulate, to learn to manage their behavior, their thoughts and their emotions and do what's needed in the situation in our home or in a school setting. Well, we're going to be getting into all of that. And I'm so excited about all of that information. I know that the listeners are, are you know, excited to hear what you have to say. Now, I talked about this in the intro, but in your book, you say, if you look around and see misbehaving, undisciplined children everywhere, it's not your imagination. Children today are fundamentally different from past generations. They truly have less self-control. Simply put, we face a crisis of self-regulation. So can you explain what you mean by this and how you came to this conclusion? Yes. So so this was something that just started from my own personal experience as a parent. And, you know, I'd heard about the terrible twos. I was expecting that. I even heard there was a three major stage that kids kind of get stubborn. But by the time my kids were four and five, I was sort of waiting, like, when did they start to cooperate? When does it get better? When does the switch flip and suddenly it gets easier? And people had always said, you know, oh, it gets easier, it gets easier. I was waiting for that. And one story I'll tell you from those years really crystallized for me what was going on and and made me determined to figure out a solution. I was, um, my my oldest kid had just started kindergarten. I volunteered for um, playground recess duty at the public school and I wanted that good school home connection. So it's a beautiful fall day, sunny. You sort of picture my perfect little angel with the chubby cheeks <laughs> playing with all these other new kindergarten friends. And nearby were some giant fourth and fifth grade boys on the blacktop just whipping balls across the court, you know, kickballs, basketballs, looked dangerous. So I waved over and said, boys, you know, please play a little more carefully. And they just ignored me. Mm. And this was totally different experience than I had remembered from my own childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Where probably 99% of the kids I went to elementary school at least would have pretended Mm -hmm. to cooperate with the adult, giving them a direct instruction. And then, so that got this question burning in my brain of, is there something different about how kids interact with adults now versus when I was growing up? And then in all these different settings in those early elementary years, I was a Girl Scout leader. I volunteered to coach my kids Odyssey of the Mind team. And um, I volunteered in the classroom. And in all these settings, I saw kids who just were different. They seemed different. They were jumping out of their seats. They were kind of talking when the adult was talking. And I heard parents say things like, oh, he has anxiety. That's why he asks every five minutes, when am I going to pick him up? Or she has ADHD. That's why you have to touch her shoulder to get her attention. Mm -hmm. And that got me, my journalist brain, interested in really understanding the science. Is there something different? Um, You know, what can we do to really help kids to and help ourselves to have, you know, have them control themselves better? Mm -hmm. So that's when I found the statistic you mentioned um, that one in two kids 
will have a mood or behavioral disorder by 18. And that's a study I found from the National Institutes of Health that is a representative sample of more than 10,000 children. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a sampling error. This is a snapshot of our children. Right. And the other really powerful statistic that I found that convinced me this was a problem is the suicide data. Mm-hmm. So look at the suicide rates from the mm-hmm. CDC, and they have doubled mm-hmm. for children 10 to 14 years old in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And the suicide rate has gone up 41% for children 15 to 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's an epidemic. That yes. is a crisis when our children are dying because they cannot control their big emotions or their worried thoughts or their troublesome behavior, you know, something needs to be done differently mm. than than doing now. Oh, so true. And and I'm glad you picked up on all of that. One of the phrases in your book that caught my eye was, can you imagine sending a child to timeout because they couldn't ride their bike to the stop sign and back? Of course not. And the reason why that sort of caught my eye is because we are realizing that children's misbehavior is not something they're doing on purpose. It's something that has to do with their brains and their development. We're learning from extensive research and with each conversation that we've had with our How to Talk to Kids About Anything podcast guests and our audience gets to hear these things and I get to hear all these things and participate in it. We've had psychologists and educators like Dr. Ross Green, who I mentioned, and Dr. Lynn Kenny, Wendy Young. Uh, Dr. Rob Melillo and upcoming Vicki Hopeful and, and you that are saying kids don't want to behave badly or as Dr. Ross Green says, kids do well when they can. So if timeouts don't work, and gosh, I know we get messages from children, from, from people who are, are looking for another way like nearly daily now, and rewards reward charts don't work, and consequences like suspensions and expulsions don't work, what does? So what are the powerful tools and strategies that you discovered in your work that will truly make a difference to ourselves and our kids' behavior and well-being? So that is the $10,000 question, right? It so, really is. I think it's worth more than $10,000, actually. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, I looked at these four models of, of uh, teaching kids to self-regulate. And uh, rather than endorsing one or the other, because they're all amazing, and there are many other great models out there, I wanted to pull out the common elements that really make them effective, mm-hmm. that align with what we know about what's happening in kids' brains as they develop. And those are number one. Uh, so I found three common elements. Number one, a focus on connection mm-hmm. between the adult and child, which is really powerful to help kids self-regulate. Number two, of communication between the adult and child about the kids' actions, about what they're experiencing, and about the solutions to their behavior. And number three, a focus on capability building. So a steady you know, pressure and challenge to help kids grow their social and emotional skills, or even just their life skills, their sense of themselves as capable and autonomous and powerful, because in fact, that's what we want. We Mm -hmm. want us to be worked out of a job where we are no longer in charge of them, we're not controlling them, we're not telling them what to do, they have that self-discipline. And ultimately, really, that's our goal. So um, whenever we can use those three elements in a solution to a child's behavior, that is what's going to grow their self-regulatory skills. And 
it really aligns with what I found in the neuroscience labs that when we are um, looking at a ch- inside a child's brain through an MRI study and see them dysregulated, activated, their amygdala it lights up, mm-hmm. they, they're in fight or flight state, they are not able to access the prefrontal cortex where they are making good decisions and problem solving and using their critical thinking. So our goal should be to help them get out of that fight or flight state to self-regulate. And then once they're using their higher order brain functions to problem solve and talk through what happened and make a plan for next time, help them to better understand what's going on so that they can improve their skills in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. So could you give us an example of how we might use those three components, maybe in, in an example that you, you have in your book or an example that you have from your life so that people understand how to apply those three elements to a misbehavior? Sure, sure. So um, an example I have used myself and I often use as an example is you walk into a room and you see your child on their iPad. Mm-hmm. And oh, surprise, surprise, it's not iPad time. It's, <laughs> it's homework time. And so they're breaking a family rule. Our impulse is to lay in them, right? Nice. Be like, what are you doing? You're breaking a rule. I can't trust you to sort of attack and blame them. And that action we know is going to stimulate their amygdala. Mm -hmm. They're going to get amped up. They're not going to be able to respond in a controlled or rational way. They're probably going to yell back at us. We'll just spiral into a fight or both of us being dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So instead of that, if we can sort of find our Zen (laughs) and take a deep breath, calm ourselves, calm our own bodies, find our self-regulation, connect with them for a moment, maybe put an arm around their shoulder, oh my gosh, you're still playing Fortnite? I thought kids had moved on from that or, you know, have a moment of connection. Physical connection is very powerful and also that empathy shared, you know, perspective on what they're doing. And then we move into the communication, point to our watch, say I, it's homework time or remind them if we have rules posted on the wall as I do, I just sort of point to a rule and say, look at the rules And then often they will move into what they're supposed to do. So if we are not challenging them in an aggressive way, they're more likely to stay in their regulated state, to use their problem solving, to use their rational good choices brain, and then move into what they're supposed to be doing. I'm going to ask you just because I know somebody's asking this question to the um, whatever device they're listening to this on. Mm-hmm. What if the child says, just a minute, I need a little more minute. I need three more minutes. I need five more minutes. It's not over yet. I'm in the middle of a game. What's, right. what's that next point? So there's a couple things you can do depending on your child. Um, sometimes we can just stand there with the handout and not argue, not say yes another minute, not say no another minute. And that pressure of having the handout is very, very powerful. And many parents I talk to have never tried it. Just that expectation that the child knows and you know that they should hand over the device. It's really powerful. So I would say try it if you've never tried Mm -hmm. it. If that doesn't work, yes, you can always just take the device out of their hand. And if that doesn't work, you know, come back to it later and say, we really had a problem with you stopping the device when you weren't supposed to. So how are we going to solve that? 
it, are you able to use devices on a school day or should we just not have them out and available? Mm-hmm. So that's when in another time you go back and problem solve. And the other point I want to make about the scenario is it, it doesn't mean that there's no consequence for the child breaking the family rule, right? In our family, we have agreed on our when screens are appropriate, when they're not, and the consequences if you break the agreement. So whatever the consequences that you've agreed on already, the child experiences that, but they don't have to experience it in a blaming way where you're sort of bringing down the hammer. It can just be matter of fact in our family, oh, looks like you're going to lose 15 minutes of your screen time because you violated the screen agreement. And it can just be like a checking the box and they experience the consequence. And that's where the learning happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Good example. And I'm sure that a lot of people can relate to that. Not that it's ever happened in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Now we've talked quite a bit about the importance of allowing our kids to make mistakes to fail and get back up again and then fail and get back up again. We talked to Jessica Leahy and Julie Lithcott-Hames about the need to allow failure to happen so that our children can grow and learn and develop the skills and character they need to thrive, not just as kids, but as adults. In your book, you turn this a little bit on its end and recommend giving up the quest to be the perfect parent, stating that making mistakes and being imperfect can actually help you better relate to your child and and help your child relate to you. So can you talk more about this uh, concept of letting go, being the perfect parent and how it can help us to relate better to our children? Yes. And I'm so glad you mentioned those books because I love them both. And I think they're so wise and definitely recommend them all the time to parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think I would broaden it further that not only do our kids need to make friends with mistakes and, and fail, we need to as well. Yes. We need to have the courage to be imperfect, to try something new and fail, or to recognize that what we're doing is not working. Because um, number one, it's true. Nobody's perfect. And, and trying to be perfect is responsible for a lot of our bad parenting decisions, right? Mm. When, when I used to get in a fight with my daughter about brushing her hair, it was not because I thought that her health would be better with brushed hair. It was because I didn't want other people to judge me, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't want other people to see my daughter with a messy hair and say, Oh my gosh, where is her mom? (laughs) You know, does she not care? Does she not see it? And we can't let our own self-esteem, our own hangups stand in the way of our kids learning or just experiencing being themselves. So when we have the courage to be imperfect ourselves, we're going to make better choices, number one. Number two, we're going to be such a good model for our children on how it's okay to fail. It's okay to mess up, that you need to take risks in life and Sometimes you're not going to succeed and that's okay. So when I, you know, plan badly and I don't leave enough time to get to somewhere and I'm running late, I could talk out loud and say, oh my gosh, I was so stupid. How could I have not left enough time? I should have done this in a negative, blaming, self-hating way, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the narrative I will be teaching my child Mm. or I can talk out loud you know what, I'm noticing that we are going to be 10 minutes late walking into the assembly. And I wish that I, I'm starting to get agitated. I feel myself getting worked up. I'm going to just take a couple of deep breaths. I'm going to put on some nice music so that I calm myself down. And you know what, next time we'll just leave 10 minutes sooner. 
So that shows our kids a healthier way to respond to stress, to respond to messing up. And and that's going to be a skill that they can use for their whole life. Right, right. Absolutely. If we are talking to our children about regulating their behavior, but at the same time, we aren't regulating our own and we're, you know, screaming and, and blaming ourselves, that is going to be a very powerful model that our children are definitely going to absorb and they can repeat because they see it happening right then and there, just like as they're learning in school and they learn different models in school, that's the way they learn. And it's much more powerful than just telling them what to do. So uh, I think that's really important. I like the idea of the apprenticeship model that you talk about that can help kids improve their behavior. So can you tell us what that really means and give us an example of how that model can turn behavior around? Yeah, so the apprenticeship model is just the name that um, we coined for this three-part structure Mm -hmm. of connection, communication and capability building. Mm-hmm. And um, and the name is just giving us all a pointer that we don't expect our kids to be great at this already, that they are learning, they're apprentices, mm-hmm. that we are coaching and um, mentoring them and helping them um, you know, to learn to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. And the it's just going to be more necessary. So 20, 30 years ago, kids learned a lot of these skills in the normal course of growing up because they had a lot more autonomy, because they weren't overscheduled, they had the chance to sort of mess up and make mistakes and also to play with other kids and sort of bump against other kids and learn those social and emotional skills. So we just need to take more of apprentice an apprentice model of our kids that they are on the path to learning and they need a lot more time, you know, connecting with us, helping us explicitly teach them those self-regulation skills. So, you know, communicating with them about what does it feel like in your body when you are having a panic attack? Mm. So is it in your chest or does your head feel buzzy? And and then focusing them on self-help, on strategies that that will build their skills, that will help them through that moment. So, so the next time you have a panic attack, like let's brainstorm 10 things you could do could you put a cold cloth on your forehead? You do 10 jumping jacks, call a friend, color, you know, what are the things that you are going to have as in your toolbox to help you address that situation in the future? Mm. And just over and over and over, you know, sort of helping them plan ahead, prepare for something, and then experience it, and then process and talk through what happened, what worked, what didn't work, what will you do next time? It's just this constant cycle and our kids will get better and better and better at it. And the more that we do it, the more they themselves will approach setbacks with um, neutral, you know, eye of what am I going to learn from this Mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of blaming themselves and going into a spiral. Absolutely. And this idea of anxiety is something that we've talked about a lot. And I, I think that the people who really concentrate on that area would absolutely agree with you. We've interviewed Karen Young, who's done incredible work in this area, uh, Don Hebner, and most recently we talked to Lisa Demore, who talks a lot about anxiety in girls. And yes, having different methods and finding out what works for each child is is part of the way that we help our kids manage their anxiety because we can't be the ones who manage it for them. They have to be the ones who are in charge um, as time goes on. 
So in your book, you talk about all different types of scenarios, and it prompted me to think I'd like to play with you a game we play with a couple of my guests, which is uh, let's do this, not that. And so in your book, you talk about a child who throws a chair at a teacher. So we know now that putting that child in a principal's chair to be reprimanded, taking away recess, suspending or expelling that child, making them sit on the floor because they clearly can't have a chair around is not the answer. So what is? Yeah, so this is a great scenario because it is one that raises all our alarm bells as adults that, um, you know, is something that's so beyond the pale. So number one, of course, you must keep everyone safe, number one. So safety um, is always going to take priority. Mm -hmm. So you make sure that that child is safe. You make sure the other kids and adults in the room are safe. And then you, you know, to me, this is a perfect scenario for Dr. Green's problem, um, collaborative and proactive solutions, where you then, when, once the child has calmed back down, talk to them about, you know, what happened? What, you know, what made you throw that chair? How did you feel? How did you experience it? What do you think would be a solution for you next time that you don't get to that point of throwing a chair? If they're saying, I don't know, I don't know, because they're younger, yes. you have to just wait it out, right? You exactly. have to keep at it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Dr. Green, if you've seen videos of him doing this with kids, he just waits. And I've observed, you know, teachers and parents, they just sort of wait or they say, you know what, from your body, it looks like this is a tough conversation. You're probably guessing, you think you're in trouble, right? Well, I want you to know that this is not about punishing you. I'm not angry with you for doing that. I want to find a solution with you. Mm -hmm. So you first have to sort of de-escalate, get the kid out of that mindset of thinking they're just going to be punished. And so he uses a lot of phrase like, phrases like that, like I'm noticing from your body, you may seem you're upset. You may even apologize and say, you know what? I'm sorry that I didn't notice you were so worked up before you threw that chair because if I had seen that, I would have jumped in and given you a hug or helped you to calm down before you got to that point. So even if we as adults can help take some of the responsibility, we're not going to leave the child blameless because they did choose to throw the chair, but we also have a role in the solution. And so when we can take ownership in the problem, that also can be very helpful in getting the kids to a solution. And if they still won't come up with their ideas, say, you know what? take a guess because I'm not you, I'm not in your body. I don't really know what it's like for you. So can you just take a guess mm -hmm. about what might help? And we can always try it for a week or two and then evaluate if that was the right solution. I have a friend who's a teacher, third grade teacher, and she said, sometimes in these types of situations, she says, but if you did know, what would you say? And sometimes they do it. <laughs> yes. She's like, it works so much of the time. I, I, I did yeah. too. I thought it was genius. And of course, she's very well loved. So I think that that was a great one. Actually, another one, you yeah. know, you, you ask the kid, you know what, if, if a friend of yours was in this situation, yes. what do you think would help them? So um, such a good method to yeah. remove the, the onus and remove the focus on the child and move it on to another being. I love to ask, you know, what advice would you have? for a friend in my character program, Powerful Words, or, you know, asking these especially young children who can have some trouble coming up with what it is that they would do themselves, but they have no trouble coming up with what to, what to advise their friend to do in the yeah. similar situation. Yeah. yeah. So that's, it's such a good, good idea. And I like that a lot. 
All right, let's do another one. You talk about a couple in the book whose kids are, as you say, partying at all hours of the night. They're playing with toys, they're making noise, and absolutely not, not, not going to bed, which is causing endless issues with getting up in the morning, getting to school on time, uh, resulting in biting interactions between the parents. So what we shouldn't do, I'm going to guess, is yell, scream, lock our kids in their rooms, take away all their stuff but their mattress, and threaten that they will never get to play with each other ever, ever again unless they go to sleep. So if we are going to answer this question, what are we to do? And of course, you can you can also talk about what we shouldn't do. Yes, yes. So <laughs> yes, no yelling, threatening, um, amping up the level of um, activity by doing that. Also, I would say don't give in. Don't either let them stay up until oh, however gosh, they, right. they want or yes. don't lie down with them. You know, yeah. don't um, don't be that permissive parent who is just sort of a pushover. Yes. Um, that poor woman in the book, though, like she's just yeah. trying to like read a book in bed. And I'm like, I get that feeling. I really can empathize with with that parent who is just like enough I can't even deal with this anymore but at the same time yeah we have to address it because otherwise you know these are the kids are ruling the house at that point right so what we did in our house um, is that we um, we to- talked to the kids at another time mm-hmm. than bedtime about bedtime and and we said you know you guys really love to, to, you know connect at bedtime and it seems like you have a lot of fun and for us that's a quiet cooling down period where we wind down from our day and we need adult time. So after eight o'clock, we are going to be doing our adult connecting with each other, winding down from the day, reading a book, having a glass of wine. And before eight, we would love to cuddle you, sit with you and chat while you brush your teeth, read a book, all those bedtime things. But after eight, we're going to be off duty. So then we sort of you know, explain that that was how we were going to handle it. They agreed. Um, and we negotiated the time they agreed on the time and then we sort of put it in place and let it play out. So in fact, after eight o'clock, we just did not engage with them. You know, they would come into the room and sort of, you know, try to engage us, get us to get a glass of water, get us to come cuddle them. And we just sort of, you know, the first time said we're off duty and then just ignored after that. So, Mm -hmm sort of similar actions as the woman in my book, but we had laid the groundwork for them to really learn from it and to understand. And the first night, yes, our kids were up. They were up after, I think about an hour after we had said we're off duty. Mm -hmm. But the next night, it was more like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the third night, at 7.45, or maybe it was even 7.50, sort of last minute, mom, can you please cuddle me? Noticing that it was getting close to Mm. eight. And so from then on, they were much more aware of the time and they had an incentive to try to get us to, you know, to get themselves to bed earlier so that they could have some mom and dad time. Mm -hmm. So that's just one idea of a kind of solution that is respectful of the child, but it's also respectful of the adult. And so our needs for sleep. Um, so that's one thing that we've done. Um, I also, um, have had 
you know, talk to parents who they find it does work to lie down with their child for five minutes mm-hmm. and then they get up and leave. But, you know, you don't want to make it indefinite and right. you don't want to fall asleep yourself. Right. Which happens so much. I know a lot yeah. of people are probably like, yep, that's me. Cause they're exhausted. People are exhausted. So I yeah. really get that. Right now, my husband's reading Harry Potter with Aww. the kids and that's the, the sort of cuddle time while I'm like puttering the, around the house, getting dishes put back or getting clothes taken out or things that are getting ready for the next day. And, um, you know, that's a very special time. And, you know, we, we talk about, well, you know, we have to end at this time. So whether or not you're ready, like your time is going to get shorter and shorter for right. that window, no matter what, we're still ending at the same time. Right. And, and so that does motivate them to move quicker. I agree with that. And they have something to work towards instead of just the threat of, uh, you know, somebody's going to yell, scream, get angry. You know, it, it does make a very big difference when they have something to work towards. So I, I think that's important. Yeah. And also for us not to then be nagging or, you know, going in every 10 minutes and go to sleep now, go to sleep already. And, you know, that is just engaging with them and it activates them more and it's not helpful. Right. Exactly. My next one was going to be based on the iPad, but I'm going to switch it because we did that one earlier. And so I'm going to say a a, a very typical thing that happens. Let's say that uh, you've got more than one child and they often bicker, not that that would ever happen in my house. (laughs) And they are, um, let's say they sat down to play a game or they sat down to watch a TV show together, which they were allowed to do. And they can't agree. They can't agree on what game they're playing or they think the other one's cheating or can't decide on which TV show to watch. And here comes the remote control to somebody's head and things are get thrown and yelling and start screaming. And your first impulse is to grab them, you know, push them apart, say you never get along, you know, all the things that that you know you shouldn't be doing, but they start coming out, I'm exhausted, you guys promised, the nagging, the sort of guilt of the things that you should not be doing. What should we be doing in that scenario? So it's a great example and it resonates with a lot of parents. Yes. I know. Um, <laughs> not so me though. I mean, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the cure for sibling rivalry because I have it, have an only child. Uh, we're all listening. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get rid of one. <laughs> well, if you already have more than one, I'm afraid that you just have to put up with fighting because yes. that is how kids learn social skills. Yeah. It's such great practice yes. for conflict resolution, for negotiation, for compromise, and that is going to be ugly. It's just the way it is. If you have um, rambunctious kids, it may be physical as well. Mm -hmm. So if you can just stay out of it, that is the ideal solution to, you know, walk out of the room, put in your earbuds, just do not engage. If you just can't, like some people will have a rule all fighting needs to happen outdoors. Mm. So regardless of the weather, the kids, I see you're fighting. You may stay in here if you can resolve it quietly. If you're going to be loud or, or physical, you need to go on the front lawn. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that often when it's cold or rainy, they will solve their problems much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the third idea I have for that is um, you can put the kids in the same boat. So if they're fighting over a toy and you really cannot stay out of it because you're just at the end of your rope, you can walk in and say, it looks like 
the remote control is causing a fight. I'm going to put the remote control away. If you two can resolve it calmly among yourselves, you may have it back. But for now, the remote control is going to go on, on high shelf or I'm going to take yes. it. So yes. so make the toy or the object of the dispute the problem, not either of the children. Right. And at other times, of course, we're going to talk through with our kids like, hey, it seems like you've been fighting a lot with your sibling. Like, what's up with that? And, you know, is, can I help you talk, think through how you're handling those conflicts and really help them to understand the dynamics so they can make different choices the next time they get in a dispute? And my kids now are just so skilled at negotiation. They have this very complex web of agreements about who is allowed into whose room at what time and when they borrow a book, what are the price rates for the different books wow. or how they get paid back and sharing cookies. And they're such good friends and they fight and they make up and they negotiate. So it's just part of the territory when it comes to having siblings. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. We are all about scripts on this podcast. So I want to do one of those before we get to our top tip. So let's say you have a child, because you talk a lot about this in your book, let's say that you have a child with ADHD or some other neurological challenge in front of you, or I'm going to say neurological difference, because yeah. it doesn't necessarily need to be a challenge, but some people find them extremely challenging. I'm just going to say difference so that there's no judgment here. And in school, this child often resists doing the writing that's required of, of that child every day. I know you talk about somebody who's in that boat uh, mm -hmm. in your book. Um, let's say he removes himself from the other kids often. And when he interacts with them in large groups, he resorts to humor that isn't always well-received or annoying behavior that gets attention, but not the good kind. The teachers are irritated with him and the child now reports to his parents that he hates school, doesn't want to go. At home, he's more comfortable and relaxed, but he may be the one who's like antagonizing his siblings or gets frustrated easily. So his parents do understand where the teachers are coming from or the coaches are coming from. So if you had this child in front of you and the teachers and the parents maybe even, what would you say or what advice would you have that you hope would be said to that child to help him out? Yeah, this is a great scenario. Um, so what I would want that child to experience with their parents is really a conversation aimed at building the kid's own awareness of the issues. Mm. And also, it's really important for the parent to come into it with an open mind, where even though you've observed that the child has annoying behavior, that may not be the conclusion that the child comes to. So this is a long-term process. Our children learning about themselves, gaining awareness, and changing and modifying their behavior. So the first conversation should just be about that first step, raising awareness, and it'll be lots of questions. So what's going on with school? It, I hear you say that you don't want to go to school. And in the past, you've really enjoyed it being with the other kids and learning whatever history or whatever their favorite subject is. So tell me what's going on now that's changed for you? What is it like for you? And then really listen. And if the child's sort of like, I don't know, like ask them. So I, I, I hear it's, it's hard to talk about, but I'm not there in school with you. So just tell me a story, paint me a picture about what, you know, one example of what is really hard for you in school, what you don't like. And then you're going to help the child pinpoint an experience and learn from that experience. So the other kids are annoying or they won't let me play or the teacher's annoying. Okay. So what did the teacher say? And what did you do? 
And what do you think the teacher was thinking mm. or why they were? Because we're going to try to raise this kid's awareness of other people's perspective and how they may be experiencing his behavior. And it definitely that first conversation is just going to be drawing out understanding the story, you're not going to get to the conclusion of you should do something different because that is very hard for a child to come to. And it will probably be weeks later that you get to that point. But the first conversation should just be raising awareness and thanking the child for sharing it with you. Mm -hmm. And if you get to it, say like, you know, is there one thing that you could do tomorrow that would make it easier for you that would be look that you'd look forward to, like, can you stop in the guidance counselor's office for a hug or are you looking forward to getting maybe chocolate milk at lunch instead mm -hmm. of regular milk or have them find one way to make the situation better for them and then follow up with it after the next day. Like, Hey, you know, I know you weren't looking forward to going to school today. Did you do that thing that we talked about mm -hmm. and how did it work out? And just, this is gonna be a long series of conversations that you have with the kid aimed at raising their awareness around their behavior helping them learn what works and what doesn't for them. And, um, you know, it could be really months before this child sort of understands their role in the dynamic. And, mm. and then maybe months again before they start to modify their behavior. But once you're on that path, you're in the right direction. So is that then the, a conversation that you're repeating periodically? Or is the next conversations uh, a, a bit different? No, it's a conversation you're repeating and you're it's really all about reflective listening where you're sort of asking a question and then making sure you understand it by restating it and asking for clarification. So, so what was school what was recess like? I know you weren't really look, looking forward to it. How did it go? And and then they explain and you say, "Okay, sounds like um it sounds like it was a little challenging for you, but maybe it was better than yesterday." Is that what I'm am I hearing you correctly and then let them you know, um, restate or clarify or correct you if you got it wrong. So it's really sort of a series of reflective listening conversations effectively. All right. We're going to get to our top tip. I just want you to fill in this sentence. The good news about bad behavior is? Uh, the good news about bad behavior is that it signals you, the adult, that this child needs a skill for that situation. So it's this big red flag that there's a great opportunity for growing that child's skills. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that it's a chance for you to really understand what's getting in the child's way and work with them on their behavior. Excellent. Give us your top tip. What do you want parents, teachers, coaches to come away with that would help them best help kids self-regulate and, uh, learn more self-control and behave better. So the number one thing I hope people take away from this conversation and our, and my book is that um, our children are not broken just yes. because one and two have a mood or behavioral disorder. Doesn't mean that they are somehow flawed and need to be fixed. Every human being on this planet has a unique mix of brain chemistry and our kids are just the same and they need us to work with them like a detective sort of helping them figure out what strategies and tools work for me. You know, what helps me to really thrive? What's what are the the the, the tools that I need in my back pocket to help me manage my behavior, my thoughts and my emotions and to really succeed not just in school but in life long term. 
my kids are not broken. That is really important and something that was repeated a couple of times by Debbie Reber, who talks about uh, neurological differences and neurodiversity, really um, helping us to understand that our kids all have different gifts and that they do need, they need some help in, in skill development and understanding how to interact with people in their own way. Um, so I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I like that it echoes that same sentiment that I like so much with Debbie Reber. Um, what is your resource of the week? What, where can we go to get more information about you and your book and all the great work you're doing? Oh, um, my website, KatherineRLewis.com, um, has a lot about the book. It has my upcoming speaking events and articles I've written. And I'm always happy to connect with parents and listeners. So feel free to email me or connect with me on social media. All of those links are there on my website. Excellent. Well, also, if anybody is driving, don't worry. We will have uh, extensive show notes to this podcast on the website and all of the great links that Catherine is providing, links to her book, links to her website, and links to her social media so that we can interact. And I just want to thank you so much, Catherine, for your insight and your strategies for being on the show today. I really love all the things that you're saying about kids and their ability to thrive if we take the time to connect and communicate and really help them to develop the skills they need. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. What a rich conversation. I really appreciated it. Well, many thank yous to you. I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram and I'm under Dr. Robin Silverman. I'm going to be going back and forth with Katherine Lewis and we are going to be uh, talking about this throughout the week. You can get your questions answered. I'm going to be developing memes as I always do, as you can imagine. Catherine said some really awesome things today, and I'm going to put them on a meme so we can share them all over the place. I know how much you love that. And I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review this, this podcast. So many great lessons on it. And I hope that you'll do that because the more you do that, the more exposure that podcast gets and people really need this. This is a, such important information. So I hope you'll do that today and I would consider it a great favor. That's all the time we have for today my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts up there. The show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. And there'll be resources that you can look up and use uh, for your own homes. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. I know you've been listening in today and probably thinking, I screamed, I yelled, I did wrestle that iPad away. I did say those words that I wish I didn't say to my child. That's okay. You, we, we all make mistakes and we aren't meant to be perfect. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. 
You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.